Welcome to the Climate Capital Podcast, where we interview founders who are solving the most difficult and important decarbonization problems. Climate Capital, across our funds and our syndicate, is one of the most active funders of early stage climate tech globally. This episode is led by me, Michael, uh, one of the two GPs of Climate Capital's BioFund. Today, I am interviewing Ed. Uh, Ed is a mathematician by training who has spent his career using mathematical models to optimize processes in industries spanning genetics, finance, and legal tech. At the beginning of 2020, he joined up with elementary school friend and molecular biologist Max to found Hoxton Farms. Hoxton Farms uh, is growing real animal fat without the animals. They're cultivating a deliciously fatty future to make meat alternatives, which perform like the real thing. And full disclosure, Hoxton Farms is a portfolio company of climate capital. So uh, let's get into it. Ed, thank you so much for making the time to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's start with with you. Um, Where are you located right now and, and where'd you grow up? Right now, I'm located in central London, um, which is where our pilot facility and lab and um, research space is. Uh, it's not it's not too far away from both where both Max and I grew up. Um, we, we grew up together in North London, um, so it's nice to nice to be nearby. Awesome! Can you kind of walk us through anything more than the intro about kind of your background, specifically? kind of how you got into the work that you're doing now and also like how do you introduce yourself at at a party like what do you tell friends about your work that <laughs> that, that don't know what you're up to yeah um, so so yeah as you mentioned earlier my background's in in mathematics so it's a surprise for people who know that and have, have known me through my career that I'm now working in the food industry um, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that's super exciting for me I've always been obsessed with food and um, both with playing around with food in the kitchen and, of course, eating food, and then um, the impact that food has on culture and, and of course, on sustainability. So um, I've always been passionate about this area and um, had this opportunity to get involved, particularly in this space, in early 2020. Um, mm-hmm. My my co-founder um, is, a, is a biologist and two of us go back um, a really long way and we were really excited about this this possibility of using the combination of my world of mathematical modeling alongside Max's world of synthetic biology to make a difference in this space. So tell us the origin story. Um, how did Hoxton Farms come to be? Well, probably like many origin stories, um, it came about in the pub. Um, <laughs> it happened to be... Uh, in the in a pub in an area of London called Hoxton, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, where the name came from. There you go. We we actually learned later that Hoxton is named um, named because it used to be Hogstown. It's where in London they kept the pigs um, oh. back in the back in the Anglo-Saxon times. Right. Uh, but that was that was not on purpose. We were just in the pub uh, having a drink and. Uh, we we had spent a while together talking about the ways that we could use this combination of our different skills. Um, I'd spent a while optimizing different processes in in a wide range of different industries, and Max had been working in through his PhD, growing lots of cells in the lab um, and wondering if he could eat them. 
and and <laughs> we we'd been learning about this this industry that was developing around cultivated meat um, but felt we had a, a unique angle particularly in the way that we were combining these different worlds to um, optimize the the way that you grow cells um, but also in the way that we were thinking about using fat um, which uh, for us as as amateur not very good home cooks uh, we kind of knew that that was where all of the the flavor is in meat um, mm-hmm. and it, it felt like a good um good way to get into this space so you and max went to elementary school together is that that's right and that's right and then did you did you split off like did you go to different high schools or university we were at um high school together so we spent uh, probably about 15 years together yeah. um, awesome and that was that was enough. So then we split off for a while. Um, <laughs> he he went off to to Cambridge to study biology, um, and I went to Oxford to study maths. And um, so on, kind of different sides of that old old rivalry, uh, which is mm-hmm, good fun. Mm-hmm. And then um, after my degree, I went into industry. I was a machine learning researcher for a while in in fintech. Um, and then I helped a professor of mine essentially start a new company solving maths problems across um, all of these different industries, which was, which was really good fun. Max, at the time, um, moved over to the dark side, so moved over to Oxford to do his PhD mm. um, and mm. finished his PhD a few years later. He uh, spent a little bit of time um, on the even darker side in VC. Um, <laughs> working uh, on some biotech problems, um, and then got into future food, and kind of brought me into into this world. Um, and then from from there, we started Hoxton Farms. Had you stayed in touch through university and afterwards, or was there like a I don't know, like a reunion where you guys hadn't seen each other in a long time and realized you could work together? Like, what was the process there? Um, it was actually a a third friend who had recently founded his own company um, and kind of brought Max and I together um, to to think about ideas and um, kind of explore this possibility of things that we could do together. Um, at the at the start, it was not serious at all, um, and we had some crazy, terrible ideas. Uh, I was growing, uh, I was growing an algae called duckweed, um, yeah. which kind of grows on the on the top of canals in London, I was growing that in my kitchen for a little while, um, which was was not a great thing to be doing. Didn't smell great, um, <laughs> but that was our kind of first foray into thinking about food. Um, and and yeah, we we then spent a, a couple of years kind of exploring these different possibilities together, but not not taking it too seriously until 2020, when it really felt like it was this opportunity coming together where I was in a in a place in my life where I had um, kind of started exploring what I could really do seriously to um, to work on sustainability, work on climate. And Max had just finished his PhD at that point and was kind of exploring what, what he could do next as well. And it just felt like this kind of opportune moment for us to come back together and, and start. Yeah, I think for a lot of people who listen to the podcast, one of the questions is like, I'm thinking about becoming an entrepreneur or a founder. How do I know it's like the right time to make the leap? Right. So for I think that 
it sounds like for you guys, it was more, you know, these external circumstances, you'd been noodling on it for a long time and um, had gotten to a point where it kind of made sense in both of your careers to to take the chance. Does that seem right? Yeah, I think that's right. There's, that's right. There's a lot that comes together when yeah. you start a company. Um, there was also kind of the macro world as well. Um, we were living through the the pandemic. We were seeing lots of different interesting things happening in the food space at that time. Um, and that kind of fed into us thinking about how we could make a difference. Um, and and yeah, it was just the right time in our lives. Um, I, I don't think there's a huge amount more, more to it than that. We just decided that we would take the leap. I think mm-hmm. the first six months or so, we we didn't know whether we'd really start a company and and it would go anywhere or if we would just kind of mess around and and see what happened well before we get into the process of kind of finding product market fit and what happens in those first months and years of building a company for people who are unfamiliar with the problem can you describe the problem that you're solving and why it's important in a sustainability context? Yeah, of course. Um, traditional animal agriculture, particularly intensive animal agriculture, is is really killing us and killing the planet. Um, we see the carbon emissions, fresh water usage, land usage, even things like antibiotic usage um, in intensive animal agriculture. And that's really concerning and something that we need to do a a huge amount of work to fix. On the other side, we've seen um, this amazing soaring demand over the last 10 years in plant-based meat, in meat alternatives. But we think that plant-based meat still isn't good enough yet. And that's that's why we've seen the kind of stagnation in the last couple of years in in this demand curve. People try plant-based meat once, but then they don't go back because it disappoints on flavor and cooking performance and and everything like that. What's really missing there is this key ingredient, which is fat. So what we do at Hoxton Farms is we grow real animal fat, but without the animals. So we, we grow our own pork fat. We take cells from pigs and we grow those cells to, um, to essentially make an ingredient which is exactly the same as traditional pork fat, but made in a cruelty-free and sustainable way. And we'll sell that as an ingredient to meat alternatives companies so that they can finally make products that are delicious and look and cook and taste just as good as the real thing, if not even better. Awesome. And just for for context for our listeners, Global aviation travel accounts for about 2% of annual greenhouse gas emissions. Livestock contributes, depending on you know the, the numbers that you use, about 17%. So at least in popular parlance, like if I talk to my parents about climate change and the work that, that I do, they are much more likely to think like, airline travel, burning that jet fuel than the steak or bacon that they might eat in their lives. But that is that steak or bacon is the by far larger driver of emissions. So um, you are, I believe, working in the probably the highest impact climate area 
or climate solution set area because I believe livestock is the single largest emitting category. You know, obviously it's all about how you slice and dice it, but it's it's huge. Yeah, exactly. When you look at look at reports now, I think McKinsey came up with a, a report that talked about how you can use a dollar of investment to make the biggest impact in climate and mm. food and in particular livestock was the the one way that you can make the biggest impact and and, and that is particularly inspiring to us that's what one of the things that motivates us us every day and um, i don't think you're going to be able to solve that problem though by getting people to change their behavior because people love that steak or bacon that, that they eat and um, and we have been trying to change people's behavior around that for for quite a while. You need to give people the um, the food that they love to eat, but give it to them in a way that is made sustainably. Yeah, I could not agree more. I think that in the same way that we're seeing this transition with electric vehicles, for example, across the whole scope of climate tech one of the things we look for as an investor is a product that is better than the kind of environmentally unfriendly product it's replacing mm-hmm. um, and i think in many cases electric vehicles are a good example of that and becoming a better example of that where you know you can have a better experience with your car a better vehicle um, and it is more sustainable and we are you know, increasingly seeing that across electrification and heating and cooling and starting to see it more and more with materials um, and food, but food and materials are kind of industrials. And, and when I'm saying materials, like all the things we create, I think are, are still some of the places where solutions are in their earlier stage. But can you just, for my clarity and for everybody's clarity, give us the elevator pitch? You know, what what's the Hoxton Farms overview? I know you've already explained a little bit of what you do, but would love to you know get the get the quote from you. Yeah, of course. So you're right. And the the most exciting thing here is being able to produce in our case food that is even better than the real thing. So even better than traditional animal agriculture and um, fat made in a, in a traditional way. The, the first thing that we have to do in, in this space, which is pretty nascent, is match up to the real thing though. Um, mm-hmm. food is, mm-hmm. food is like such an amazing part of our culture. Like we spend so long, um, eating together, cooking together, we get recipes handed down through generations and i think there's something really special about that and i think it would be a shame to to lose that um we really need to make products that allow people to keep those recipes and keep those traditions but do so in a sustainable way and and that's what we enable with the fact that we make so we make um make real pork fat it sizzles in the pan exactly how pork fat sizzles in the pan it browns in the right way um when you mix it with plant protein, things like soy and pea, um, you get that Maillard reaction and you get the, all of the flavors and the juiciness and everything that you expect from real meat. Um, the, the biggest challenges that we have are around cost and scale. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we reduce the cost and do this at big enough scale that we're actually feeding the whole population? And that's where we use 
mathematical modeling and machine learning to make this process much more efficient. Understood. And the audience might not know it, but the kind of food tech space, people who are trying to do at work on solving the same problem that Hoxton Farms is working to solve is, I think, relatively crowded. Uh, maybe less so today than it has been in the past, but but there's a lot of different companies working on cell-cultured meats or molecular farming or a whole bunch of different approaches to this most massive kind of sustainability problem. And also, you know, massive market opportunity if you can solve it. What is Hoxton Farms' competitive differentiation? What makes, you know, you think that you are going to succeed above and beyond the other people who are who are working on the problem? Before I answer that, I, I think it's important to note that in food, it's it's different to lots of other spaces that the pie is so incredibly big um, and there's so much opportunity that we actually just need lots of these different solutions to succeed. What we do is incredibly exciting and I think it is one of the set of solutions that will be needed to create the future of food, but it's mm-hmm. not the only solution. There are um, other solutions out there that will be used in combination with the work that we do um, to, to develop this future. And that's that's super exciting to me. And um, so although it's a crowded space, I think it should be a crowded space. Um, as you mentioned earlier, there's such an impact that we can have in this space. Um, and we will do that by working within um, the industry, within the kind of group of companies working together to make that happen. Um, but particularly on on what we do, I think there's a couple of ways of answering the question from a product perspective. What we make is real fat. Um, it's not something like precision fermented fats. Um, there are people who are engineering yeast to try to make fats that are similar to animal fat. What we make is animal fat. It's um, we we make the same cells that um, that you find on the side of a steak or in the, the side of your strip of bacon, um, and uh, that's what comes out of our of our reactors. So we we don't need to do a load of downstream processing to try to convert what it is that we make into fat. It it really is the same fat that you would already want in these products, um, and it's not hard to see if you take some pork fat for the butcher and you fry some soy in it um, it's not hard to see how much of a difference that that really mm-hmm. makes to the mm-hmm. final product that was the the first thing that we did when we were kind of thinking about whether or not this was the right right approach for a company um, for a company for us to start and it turned out that you you just make such a difference to flavor so that's kind of the the product perspective and then there's other perspectives on the technology as well. Um, we're developing really cool, really scalable, really cost-efficient technology to, to make this work at scale. Yeah, yeah. From a level-setting perspective for our listeners, there are a lot of scientific advancements that have been made in this field. And the idea that we could create even something like the finest and most, you know, otherwise expensive Wagyu beef in a lab without using a cow. We can do that. Um, 
that is already possible. It's already happened. The trick is how much did it cost? Um, <laughs> and it, it's right now, you know, at small scale and, and quite expensive. And so, you know, the pioneers, as I think you said, well, Ed, across lots of different companies are all chipping away at how do we get bigger scale so we can feed the world and how do we do it cost effectively so that ideally it is even more affordable than, you know, buying um, animal derived products. When you are thinking about kind of the initial trajectory for Hoxton, what are the com- customers that you think you will work with in the either that you're working with now or that you will work with in the near future? Who is a buyer for for animal fat? The companies who we're looking at are your traditional plant-based meat companies. Okay. So um, of course people like impossible um beyond um who are actually of the kind of smaller side of um the some of the plant-based meat companies that that are out there um there are huge multinationals um people like uh kellogg's unilever Kraft Heinz, all have lots of plant-based brands um and they have a huge amount of the market share in the space uh, it's those sorts of companies that we're looking at and also the small startups that are coming through there's the really exciting technologies being developed in the the plant-based meat space to texture plant protein um we're not we're not really fussy here we we work with companies who are developing products using all different types of protein whether it's soy or pea or mycelium and all different types of manufacturing processes whether it's high moisture extrusion or 3d printing or whatever and mm-hmm. there are advantages to all of these different technologies and we're excited to to work with different companies across that whole space understood and and when you first started Hoxton Farms what was the vision on day 1 and how has that evolved over time into what you've just explained to us today in a lot of ways it hasn't changed that much which is which is Great. I think it shows that what we're solving in some ways is a very simple problem. Um, the fats and oils that people use now are not good enough. And we're making a much better version that is the real thing and they can use in their mm-hmm. products. Um, that has always been what we've, what we've planned to do. When we started the company, we spoke to loads of different plant-based meat companies to validate this idea. Um, we read annual reports from um, the public plant-based meat companies <laughs> and they they specifically called out fat as one of the biggest problems that they have. Mm. And I think that was super exciting early on. We kind of knew immediately that we were onto something and we haven't seen another solution since we started the company that has got anywhere near solving this problem. So we haven't needed to kind of change the way that we think about what we do. The, there have been a huge number of changes in kind of the, the technology that we're building as it's developed over time, but really the core philosophy of the company hasn't really changed since day one. Beautiful. I think that for many companies that have, you know, they start out, they have a guiding philosophy, like this is the market, you know, or this is the technology set. This is the problem we want to solve. And for, for a lot of companies, there's a huge then divergence in, okay, how, how are we going to solve that 
problem or how are we going to leverage that technology? Um, so it sounds like maybe you all have, have had less of a difficult discovery process in finding that product market fit. But if, is there any anecdotes you can share with us about you know, things that you had assumed would be one way and, and you found out you were wrong and had to adjust the plan or, or places where you've you know, basically had to do any sort of pivoting? Yeah, um, although there's been no pivoting and kind of the grand mission of what we do, we pivot every day. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like from from the start of the company, like we um, we thought that we could be at market in you know a year's time, something like that. And that that is not the case. This is a um, a highly regulated area. Um, and we need to scale up significantly before we can um, before we can actually go to market with our customers, um, and that has meant kind of a big shift in the way that we think about the research that that we do. Um, also, working in in biology, um, I'm although I'm not a biologist, I'm kind of learning a, a lot of biology as I go. Um, yeah. Biology is an extremely um, extremely difficult area to work in. You're at the mercy of the cells that you're growing. Um, and they have a um, an amount of time that they take to double, and that means that there's uh, an amount of time that it takes you to run every experiment that you run, and that means that you are kind of limited in a way that you're not limited if you're building a, a software startup, for example. Um, so there, those inherent limitations have meant that we've needed to kind of very carefully think about what the most important experiments are for us to run to make sure that everything that we do in the company is focused on driving down cost and improving the way that we scale. Um, and we've learned a lot along the way in on, on both of those um, factors. Makes sense to me. I think that the story of every startup is is just this massive kind of series of pivoting in response to the evidence you find on the ground, right? It's always always different than you expect um and from the perspective of an early stage investor even like you look at people's business plans and you're more trying to say what can i understand about how these people are thinking about the problem than saying is this the right business plan because you know it's going to change um and change a lot can you tell us if they're about the story of maybe the biggest crisis or challenge that the company has faced so far and and what you've learned from it yes um <laughs> there's there have been lots of challenges along the way um probably the the biggest one i can't go into too many details here but um the biggest one that we've had was a, a recent um discovery that a part of our process which we've been developing um that relied on an input from a supplier of ours, um, it it turned out that the input from the supplier was is not food safe, and um, so uh -huh. it can't be used in our in our process. Um, I I think one of the things I didn't expect to quite learn as much about um, as I have is the regulatory world, um, policy, lobbying, food science. Um, specifically focused on on safety and um, mm -hmm. that whole world is extremely important um, and maybe in some ways it seems obvious now thinking back but um, 
you know, when we first started this company, we thought we'd just need to grow lots of cells and that would be it. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, yeah. It, it turns out there's a lot more to it than that. So recently we had this issue um, where we found out that, that part of the process was not compliant. Um, and it, although the input is safe, for us to prove that it's safe would take a, a couple of years and a huge amount of expense. So um, we had to remove the, that ingredient from our process and that um, meant that our research had to shift in a different direction and um, caused a, a huge challenge to us. Um, it has all come together now and, and we've kind of come out the other side and we're in a good place. And, and looking back on all of that, I think there's a, a few lessons that, that we learned. Um, firstly, to not trust the supplier when the supplier says something <laughs> is, is food safe um, to kind of check it ourselves um, which was a you know a powerful lesson on kind of incentives and and how we we think about working with external companies um, and kind of always doing the work ourselves and not cutting corners um, but the the other big area was kind of how when you bring the whole team together to solve a problem like this um, we had 30 people come together with their scientific minds and, and think about what the right solution would be and how we'd remove this ingredient it's just amazing the things that people can come up with and the, how quickly you can solve these kinds of challenges um, so I think that's the, the other side of this although it was a big challenge for us um, bringing together a load of minds um, and getting people talking and debating all of the different things that you could do to solve an issue is um, is fun, it's exciting, and you can get there extremely quickly. Absolutely. Is there anything that you had found surprising about the status quo for you know either state of food or state of food regulation, things things that you didn't know going into it and that our audience probably doesn't know that you can that you can share? Yeah. Food regulation, I think, is is a really interesting world now that I'm into it and learning <laughs> a lot more about it. Um, my, my perception on the outside was just this world is slow and the regulators are the evil ones who are trying to stop us making the food that we want to make and taking that to market. And that was completely the wrong view of mm. the regulators and the processes. Uh, at the end of the day, what we make needs to be safe for consumers to eat it and we need to be able to prove to the regulatory bodies that that it is safe and that kind of rubber stamp um, from the fda in the us um, and uh, the uh, food standards agency in the uk is extremely important for consumers to, to really be happy eating these products so i kind of have a different view on the regulators now i, I think of us as being on the same team as the regulators. However, frustrating that can sometimes be. Um, and I look at the process and although the process is time consuming, I understand much better now why it takes time for us to prove that these products are safe and how best to work with the regulators to, to actually make that happen. Yeah, I think that we have a tendency in as as humans right to take it for granted anything that is just has been a part of our lives for 
the entirety or the majority of our lifetimes. So for you know, someone like me growing up in the United States or, or you in the UK, food safety for our lifetimes has been kind of a given. We're like, yeah, of course, like food is safe, but it's kind of a relatively new thing. Um, you know, I mm -hmm. think even in uh, our kind of grandparents' lives, there were many periods of time where you probably couldn't trust that you were always, you know, getting good meat or that the thing you bought at the store was going to be non-contaminated. Um, so it's certainly <laughs> something to be grateful for that, that I, I, I very rarely think about. Yeah. And, and even now when you look at how people treat food, um, there's, there's all sorts of things that, that people do that kind of aren't really in line with um, food safety, but people think mm. that they're treating their, their food in a way that makes it safe. Um, like in in the US, um, I think it's pretty common to wash chicken before you you cook it. And mm -hmm. in in the UK, no one washes their chicken because that doesn't have an effect on on safety and doesn't make <laughs> the chicken any cleaner. Um, there's no reason to wash chicken, um, yeah. but it's it's so common. And there are so many misconceptions around food safety and how we treat our food and handle our food um, that that I find that whole world kind of really fascinating now. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that you've found on the journey uh, that you've been on with Hoxton Farms that's controversial or you know, frequently comes up as controversial, either about making food in a lab or the way in which you do it? I think what we do is kind of inherently controversial, I guess. What's the pushback you get on, on it? More than anything, it's just that people find it weird. Like okay. the, the idea of, of growing our food in a lab feels weird to people, um, which is surprising to me. Like the same people who find it weird that we'll grow cells in our lab have a sourdough culture at home that they're keeping in their fridge and feeding every other day. Like mm -hmm. this is this is not really a new way of, of making food. Um, it's very similar to brewing beer or making bread or um or wine or whatever and those those are things that we've been doing for, for thousands of years so um now i i think that's i think it's really interesting the way that people perceive what we're doing is different just because it's a little bit newer and a kind of advancement on what they've seen before when in reality i i don't see this as kind of that new in the way that we produce food yeah i think that the idea of fermentation as old technology being repurposed in new ways is is very interesting to me because you tell people about what you're doing and it sounds like science fiction and you're like actually no it's it's kind of building on one of the oldest technologies we've got like <laughs> exactly um, yeah it's it's this interesting dichotomy i also feel in my experience working with companies like yours and thinking about the space it's a strange double standard almost like it's the kind of worry about making something that is food in a lab as being maybe unnatural or unhealthy but then you know the same consumer is very happy to eat a diet you know like diet coke and some doritos right yeah. and it's like well Doritos and Diet Coke are not like naturally occurring. You know, those are created in a lab too. Um, we just don't, we don't 
for some reason think about them in the same way. Yeah. The the biggest issue that I have at the moment is when people talk about processed foods. Like mm. every food that we eat undergoes a process. Um, cooking is a process. Uh, there, there is nothing that you'll find at the supermarket that hasn't undergone some process to turn it from whatever it was originally into whatever it is that you're buying. But it's just a label that people are now sort of able to use to um, kind of uh, insult some some foods versus others and to kind of pick and choose which foods are, are the ones that they're happy eating and others that they're not happy eating. Um, and it means kind of so so little but people use it all the time and um, i still don't know whether what what we do counts to those sorts of people as a process <laughs> um because there is a process um or if they look at this and think well we're making real pork fat so it's the same as what you'd have naturally and there's no process um yeah i still i still don't know yeah that's really interesting that one i haven't really thought about before it seems like when I use the word process, what I mean is like the food having been treated with chemicals or having mm-hmm. chemicals, you know, in it or on it. But that's not, you know, that's not what process actually means. And it's not, I'm sure there are lots of foods that aren't labeled as process that have lots of chemicals and vice versa. So yeah, that's a tricky one. Yeah. Um, the other the other controversial thing that I think we have, um, aside from the fact that we're growing cells in the lab, we're also making fat. Mm-hmm. And people don't really know how to think about fat. If you mm-hmm. if you ask someone who cooks or um, or a chef what they think about fat, they get really excited about fat because that's where all of the flavor lives. Um, but if you ask someone who is on a health kick what they think <laughs> about fat, they have a, a different answer. Um, and that's that's really interesting for us. We've kind of lent into um, being proudly fatty, and we we think about fat all the time. We're obsessed with fat, um, and we think that flavour is the number one thing here. We also think that fats can be healthy um, and a, mm-hmm. a kind of really important part of a of a balanced diet. But uh, it's definitely interesting and kind of a barrier for people when they think about what we do. It's kind of one of the controversial things that you get. Um, We'll get people saying, "Why are you making fat? I don't want fat. Um, mm. I want things that don't have any fat." Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's super interesting. It's like, well, no, you you don't. You want the fat. You want it to taste good. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I don't know if this is something you all have considered, but and I'm, I guess I'm sure it, it is. But it seems to me like you can do these interesting crossovers right where i can think of like bacon as this maximally delicious but also maximally unhealthy thing and then maybe like unflavored cube of soy protein like kind of not delicious but pretty healthy um and it sounds like you could flavor that soy protein with pork fat and all of a sudden maybe you're getting something that's more delicious but also more healthy uh, and I'm curious if that's an avenue that you all are interested in, or if that is something, you know, that is dumb and I, I just haven't realized why yet. Um, so how do you think about something like that? Yeah, that's, that's exactly how we think about what, what we do. Um, we, when we plan to sell our cultivated fat, um, most of the people will 
most people who we sell it to, most of the companies will incorporate that into some um, final product containing something like soy or pea um, or yeah. mycelium, and um, they will think about that as being um, as being healthier than um, traditional meat. Um, there, health is a, an area, health and nutrition is an area that I try to stay away from because it's so fraught with um, kind of argument and um, not particularly scientific literature. But um, but yes, when you when you look at what we do and the final products you can make with our cultivated fat, they can be significantly healthier than than the the real thing um, or traditional animal agriculture. Um, I I think that the super interesting crossovers that we'll see down the line are ones where we actually um, change the properties of the fat that we make mm. to maybe make um, pork fat that's even juicier than the pork fat that you get from the butcher um, mm. or pork fat that has some omega-3 fatty acids in it so it's um, healthier and omega-3s are, are generally found in fish fat or, or in algae and to, to be able to put that into into pork fat is super exciting so there's yeah. all of these, these different routes that we can take and just for my own clarification companies that are growing Kind of cell cultured meat. Um, would they also potentially work with Hoxton Farms? Would they be growing muscle cell and they'd want to, you know, contract with you to get fat, or do they grow their own? How does how does that work? Yes, uh, definitely. They're they're companies that we speak to all the time okay. as well. Um, most of them are not growing fat. Some of them are, um, but they don't have the same laser focus on fat that we do. Um, ultimately, that's not where we're concentrating right now because that market doesn't exist yet. Those companies themselves are still nascent. Yeah. Um, but in the future, we definitely want to partner with cultivated meat companies. Over the long term, do you see Hoxton Farms always being laser focused on fat or do you imagine expanding to other verticals? We're obsessed with fat. Um, we see ourselves... <laughs> uh, we see ourselves growing fat for a very, very long time um, and uh, going into different markets with that cultivated fat. So at the moment, the focus is on meat alternatives, but there are other areas like alternative dairy, mm-hmm. um, confectionery, bakery, um, going back to making pastries with with animal fat instead of um, instead of oils is um, one of the things that, that drives me definitely because when you taste a, um, a, a short crust pastry that's been made with lard it, it's just miles better than um, <laughs> using oils for, for the same thing um, even outside of food in cosmetics for example where um, where fats have been used for for a while and now we move, we've moved away from using animal derived fats but they still have these amazing properties that are useful in cosmetics um, they're kind of some of the industries that we think that we'll go into in the future but always with this focus on making fat What's the most helpful piece of advice you've received as a founder? That's a that's a really good question. Um, I've been given so much advice along the way. I think one of the the most important pieces was even before I was a founder when I was thinking about whether or not to to actually start Hoxton Farms, and um, the advice that I got then was essentially you should try this. 
um, <laughs> what's the what's the worst that could happen um, if you know if you have the savings to um, to be able to spend a couple of months giving something a real go um, then then you should and over the first few months of the company um, we were kind of really scrappy um, we were borrowing reagents from Max's old lab um, we found cells from somebody who we met on the internet um, <laughs> we were borrowing space in the back of somebody else's lab um, we used kind of every possible connection we could to to start giving this a go um, and and yeah I think that that piece of advice kind of really helped me get going right at the beginning um, it's daunting and you do need to come into this with the view of kind of I'm going to try and start this and I'm going to see what happens and I'm going to drop other things and, and try to do that. Um, and if it doesn't work out, then I'll figure things out at, at that point. It's always scarier thinking about taking the leap than just, just giving it a try. In my experience, at least, you know, you spend a lot of time thinking about all the ways it could go wrong, but there's a lot of ways it can go right. Is there anything that we at Climate Capital or our, our audience can do uh, to support you or help you all on on your journey or anything you want to plug to uh, to the audience? No, no major plugs at the <laughs> at the moment, but just keep following what we're doing. Keep um, keep trying interesting new foods. I think is the the biggest thing that I'd say. Um, one of the one of my biggest fears is that people try meat alternatives once and then. If they eat a product that's not very good, they never go back and try a different product. Um, and I think the the amount of different things there are out there is pretty staggering. And some are some are good, some are terrible. Mm -hmm. I think in in food, you need to try so many different things to um, to find the things that that you're excited about, the things that that you enjoy. Um, so um, that's the biggest encouragement that I'd give. If an audience member wants to try an alternative protein, is there one out there that uses Hoxton Farms fat today? And if not, what's what's your favorite alternative protein that you think is good? <laughs> um, there's there's nothing using our fat yet. Uh, we need to go through regulatory approval first, and we're we're working on that at the moment. Um, but but once we do, there'll be some amazing meat alternatives out there containing our fat. Before before that, there's there's one in the UK that I've mentioned that I think is pretty amazing. It's actually a, an alt cheese made by a company called Julienne Bruno, um, okay. and it's a it's a burrata. Um, I think it's just so like the real thing. It really has that creaminess and kind of deliciousness that you expect from burrata, and um, that's my number one product at the moment. Awesome! Wow, that's a great recommendation. Well, thank you very much. And thank you to everyone who's listened to our conversation today. If you'd like to learn more about Hoxton Farms or to get involved with the work that we're doing at Climate Capital, please check out our website, climatecapital.co. And please check out Hoxton Farms at Hoxton Farms on Twitter or LinkedIn. And what's your website? Is it hoxtonfarms.com? Yeah. Perfect. Thanks for spending a half an hour with us and we'll catch you next time. Thanks very much.